Xavier, I'd be rich if I had a dollar every time I heard someone say, man, I wish I knew 20 years ago what I know today about money. They need to be teaching about this stuff in school. Like the power of investing early. Compound interest. That alone would impact lives. Understanding and planning for taxes. Understanding the difference between both good debt and bad debt. Eric, what about all the stuff about money that business owners need to know? What kind of insurance should you be buying? The importance of contributing towards your retirement. They don't teach any of this stuff in school. Y'all sit back, get ready, because we are talking stuff about money they didn't teach you in school that you need to know. Welcome back to the Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School podcast. I'm Eric Garcia, certified financial planner. And today is a special show. I've got a good friend of mine, David Carruthers, uh, joining me today. And we're going to talk about a topic. I mean, I love talking about money, anything about money. But this particular topic is something that's super interesting to me. And Dave and I have had had an ongoing kind of long conversation back and forth on the idea of um, income versus wealth. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So first, let me just do a quick intro to David. David, I don't even know how to introduce you, man. David is a, a first, he's a friend. Second, he's a successful business owner down in Tampa, Florida. Um, he has built a uh, insurance agency where he serves commercial clients and probably even, even as successful as that. I want to talk a little bit about this. David, you're you're teaching others to do what you've done. I mean, hundreds of people, right? Yeah, absolutely. So th- this is, and, and I want to say this quick personal thing about David. Um, David and I first met in, I think it was in 2019 or 2020 in 2020, San Diego. Eric, I feel like I'm talking to my wife. Like I can remember our anniversary, and she can't. Oh man, I remember. I remember. <laughs> I remember the moment we first met, Dave. Uh, we'd come yeah, no, up it was at- 2020 in San Diego, right? I mean, like, I remember going to that conference and somebody posted in IAOA, what precautions are you taking for the coronavirus? And Nick Ayers is like, what are you even talking about? Yeah, what's the coronavirus, we- right? Yeah, COVID hadn't even hit. It was like just now starting to make its way. Like maybe three cases were on the West Coast at that point. Yeah, but uh, I think what, what happened was we had gone on that rip that cruise. I don't know. What did we cruise? Did we cruise a river? I don't even know what it was. I, I actually kind of dreaded that. I'll be honest. I dreaded that cruise once I got on. But man, I met some really, really cool people and some friendships that have lasted. And after the cruise, me and a couple of guys were smoking some cigars and you come walking along and um, I didn't know who you were. I don't think anyone at that point, you know, everyone was still trying to get, everyone was still starting to know each other in some of the groups that have, that had been formed in the insurance space. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say a lot of the even I mean, Cass's mastermind is probably oldest of those groups. Right. And so yeah. I knew some people just because I had met them at Brainshare the September before. But that was really the first time I had really even met anybody. I had gone to innovation when it, it was in Vegas and just minded my own business. I went to the ses- the breakout sessions, the stage speakers, my room. And that was it. The only reason yeah. anybody knew who I was in San Diego is because I spoke. Mm. Anyway, we shared a cigar. We swapped stories about uh, safety concerns, taking showers in third world countries. Um, (laughs) Tell that story real quick. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you have me beat on that one, man. I mean, it was quite an eye-opening experience 
when we went down, we went to Nicaragua to uh, the Perdomo cigar empire down there. And I'll never forget, you know, two things you learn very quickly about Nicaragua. Number one, you put nothing in the toilet. It all goes into a garbage can. And number two, there is no hot and cold water. There's one on and off. And there's literally a heating element in the shower head that is powered by electricity and there were are literally exposed wires on the top connected with wire nuts. And I'm just thinking to myself, all of this electricity, all of this water, what could happen, right? And then I do the same thing I do every time. I'm like, well, hadn't killed anybody else yet, so I'll, I should be okay. So that that's how I talk myself into taking it. I get out. Then the first thing I hear is, oh, yeah, they call that the Widowmaker. <laughs> But, you know, you showed me a picture and it looked like it was actually like a professionally made shower head, plastic encapsulated. So it looked like that it had was been very rigged. intentional. Yeah. yeah, that had been rigged to do what it did. Well, I was in, I was in Cuba. My story is I was in Cuba in like a small village where my dad grew up. And um, it was like it looked like a, a, a it was a metal coffee can <laughs> with with like Man, the wire, just like exposed wires. And I'm looking at this thing like that. Wow, this is insane. Could you could you imagine if you were um, trying to insure like that house or that up uh, if you had a hotel? I, I would like love that. to like, see was... the loss control inspection of of the loss control person from the carrier coming to do the site visit and opening the shower curtain and seeing that. So anyway, one thing one thing I, I do want to say. We'll move on from from that. I do want to say. Um, that I have watched over the past three years or so, and I, I have a ton of respect for you. They're they're those people who build their businesses. They're on their path to building wealth, and they're so focused on them. Okay, um, but what one thing that you have done is you have brought other people along with you. That you have raised up a lot of people, and and you are putting people in positions um, to better their lives. Uh, you have already put people in position um, to better their lives. Through building their businesses, through through learning to to sell better, to be better risk advisors to their clients, so it's been fun to watch. I'm, I'm curious, what what is it that that's not something that people are necessarily you know uh, taught to do? What is it? Was there something in your life or someone in your life who or or what what is it that motivates you to do that? Um, well, the short answer is for eight years prior to launching Florida Risk, I was put in a corner and never given the opportunity. So I pretty much made it my life's mission that if I ever had the ability to allow people with unique skill sets and talents to be showcased, I was going to do everything I could to try and help them so they didn't have to experience what I did. And I mean, the other part of it is what fun is it to go on the journey by yourself, man? You know, I mean, yeah, I've got a lot of really good friends that are um, that are in the industry, a lot of really talented people, far more talented than I am and smarter than I am in a lot of a lot of different areas. And I've I've just always been a big believer that, um, you know, I can be good at one or two things, but I can't be good at 10 or 12. And so let me find the people who are really good at those other things and put them put them around me and. you know, you're just getting to see kind of what my circle looks like because I'm 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 not the strongest person. I'm I'm weak in more areas that I'm strong. You're seeing how I get strong, and it's through the other people that I have in my circle. Yeah, we we, we have a tremendous amount of freedom in this country to build our businesses uh, the way that we want to build wealth, the way that we want to lead a life that we want to live, and clearly generating income is part of the process. It's part of the equation. 
but income is not wealth. And, and wealth is not income. There are two distinct um, things. Income is what you bring home today. And wealth is what you have tomorrow and then the next day and then the day after that. How would you distinguish the difference between income and, and wealth? Income statement and balance sheet in, in business. But you know, I don't think people realize that that also applies to your personal life. I mean, you know, your your monthly budget and reconciliation, I mean, your check register essentially is your income statement. I mean, if we really wanted to water it down, but you know, that money comes and goes. Wealth is what you retain, what you have over time, what your legacy, what you're you're creating as a legacy for your family, how you're gonna change your family tree. And you know, I would say that income is finite and wealth can be infinite if you do it right. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you if if you get your family on the right course and you teach your kids the right way, then you should be able to reasonably assume that things are going to work out okay for a few generations to come. I mean, we see it all the time. If you look at like the the wealthiest families in the in the in the country or even in the world, you hear people say all the time, oh, they're from old money. Well, how do you get old money? You build wealth and then you teach your kids how to manage it. That it, it's really boils down to that. Here's an interesting stat. I think this might've been like a 2017 or 2019 number. And, and I think I don't think the numbers changed much throughout the years that 71% of millionaires in 2017 were first generation. Now, what's mm-hmm. really cool about that and what I, what I love about this stat is, you know, some of our listeners here, you're not a millionaire. Maybe you have a business, you're on your way to, to millionaire status, and you think, I can't do it because I don't have, you know, family behind me who has built something that I can just walk in and manage. 71% of people are new millionaires. So, like, like, like the opportunity's there. Well, I think, you know, that 100% true. Um, you know, from from my perspective, I think that there's also a lot more opportunity to be, become a millionaire today than there was 50 years ago. Mm, you know, yeah. the Internet alone has made that a much more real possibility. So when you, you know, I think about free the book Freakonomics, right? I like all of the, the books those guys have written. But one thing Freakonomics taught me is you can make data and studies say whatever you want them to say. It's a matter of how you look at the data. So from my perspective, I would expect that number to be there because there's a greater opportunity. You've got kids that are in high school and even junior high in some cases making millions on YouTube or they figure out how to run a drop shipping company on Amazon and all of this stuff. And it just, it blows my mind. But I think the other part of it is not just the internet is a vehicle to earn, but it's also a vehicle to share a lot more of your knowledge. So it's not like these kids that are doing this or these first generation earners that are converting to millionaires are doing it alone. They're doing it in closed groups in masterminds where they're sharing what's working for each other. And they do that openly. And I think that perpetuates quite a bit of it too. The question is, does it stick? You know, what, what are they going to do with it? Because, Again, goes back to what I originally said. If you're gonna if you're gonna build wealth that's gonna change generations, it can't end with you knowing how to manage that. Those kids have to be taught how to manage that money. And and so the the question I would have is if they're first generation, who's teaching them? Yeah, the guys on the internet <laughs> who are making right. millions. Yeah. So we're actually gonna get to that. We're gonna talk about I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out like six six um characteristics of of millionaires or, or 
financially successful people and what they do. But before I want to get there, I do. So we're talking about the opportunities to become millionaires. So um, there is not a, obviously there's a, a correlation between income and your ability to build wealth. However, check this out. And this is from, this is a stat from Tom Stanley. I know you're a Tom Stanley fan. Uh, for those of you who don't know Tom Stanley by name, you probably know him by his work. He wrote The Millionaire Next Door back in the 90s. And then he wrote the book, Stop Acting Rich. And then him and his daughter prior to his, his death uh, published a, a um, another, uh, another book, The Next Millionaire Next Door. This is what he said. And basically what he did was he was fascinated by, by wealthy people and he studied them. He needed one to learn what made them wealthy. And he said he found that uh, he found that income explained only about thirty percent of the variation in wealth. The overwhelming impact of the other seventy percent was due to lifestyle. So that income, like thirty percent, thirty percent income, only explained thirty percent of the variance in people's wealth. Seventy percent was due to lifestyle, and I think that is something that, especially in our culture, uh, it's, it's a myth, if you will, that we believe the richer somebody looks the wealthier they are. And and if someone looks rich, all that means is they spent more money on whatever is making them look rich. It's pretty hard to find things that make you look rich that also retain that value, right? Now, if you were to walk into my house and you're like, wow, this guy must be a millionaire. He's got Picasso and Renoir and everything hanging on his wall. I very well may have wealth because that is just another asset that I've put my money to that's going to appreciate over time. But if I come in and I'm wearing, you know, the tracksuit and the the latest, you know, Yeezys and all of that other stuff because I had a YouTube video get a million views, probably don't want to go down that road too quickly. But let me just say this, because you know, as a financial planner, um, you know, I run with a lot of people all over all over the wealth spectrum. And here's what I find. There's people who are super wealthy that you would never, ever, ever know by looking at them. There are people who are not wealthy that you would think are wealthy by looking at them. And there's people who you think are wealthy because of by looking at them and they really are wealthy when because they can afford to do those things. So like to, to measure someone's wealth on external um, appearances, it's really kind of a... I'm going to say shallow. I don't want to say shallow. It's misleading. It's incredibly misleading. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I mean, I think the thing is too, man, in, in, in stop pretending you're rich and and act like a real millionaire or live like a real millionaire, whatever it is, Stanley actually breaks that down similarly in that we look at athletes and people in Hollywood as being, you know, what we should pattern ourselves after or the definition of success and wealth. And he says, take that and just throw it to the side because the ultra wealthy are such a small percentage of the population. It, it, it's not even really relevant. It's an outlier. And it really comes down to the fact that you have the people that are what he classifies as the millionaire next door and everybody else. And I mean, I think the thing to me that's the most interesting is if you just picked up that book and read it, if you any of his books, Millionaire Mind, Millionaire Next Door, Stop Pretending You're Rich, the one he wrote with his daughter, The Next Millionaire Next Door you read any of those they are not fiction they are literally a blueprint like you could literally mm -hmm. read yep. the millionaire next door do what it says in that book and there's about a hundred percent chance if you've got any kind of earning potential 
you're going to end up amassing a net worth of seven figures or more. In a lot of the times, to your point, it's not what they earn. It's what they do with what they earn. And yeah. when you read the statistics that the average millionaire lives in a house that's only $270,000, but they live there because of the school system and the lower taxes, and they can retain more of their money. They don't buy new cars most of the time. They buy used cars on lease turn-in that have extended warranties, so they don't have to deal with spending a bunch of money on maintenance, and they're not too proud to drive a car that's been gently used. And the top two cars are an F-150 and a Toyota Camry. Why a Camry? Because they could afford a Lexus, but why pay more money for bells and whistles on the same car? Everything they do is common sense, but it requires discipline. It's easy to do, but it's also really, really hard to do because yeah. we as, as people don't want to delay our gratification, number one. And number two, when we start getting to that point where we've experienced some level of success, that is how you tell how people think you tell others you've been successful is the the bling, the nice ride, the all, all of the other stuff. And so you know, Preach, man. Think, Come on, keep going. Let's yeah. Go. But I mean, I think I think that's kind of how we've gotten to where we are. And, and in reality, you know, the question I always wonder is, how do you fix it? Well, mm. you can fix it at home if you talk to your kids and you raise them in with open communication around this stuff. Or, you know, we should have something in school that requires people to go through basic financial literacy at a bare minimum before they're allowed to graduate. Hence. The, the podcast stuff about money they didn't well yeah think about this man when i went to college i met three people that were trying to get me to sign up for a credit card before i ever met my academic advisor yeah i had on my show recently um this guy does financial literacy in in very in low and moderate income households basically businesses under a hundred thousand dollars he, he works with these small businesses to help them become financially literate to 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 have success and he he came from a big bank um and he said he wasn't at the bank on it was his second year in the bank that he actually really even understood how credit cards work and how interest worked. I'm like, dude, you work at the one of like the fifth largest <laughs> bank in the entire world, and you had no idea how interest worked. I mean, that's how banks make their money at the end of the day. It's 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 lending, it's interest, which which blew me away. So so let, let's 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 move into some of these characteristics of of what makes someone a millionaire. But this is kind of where a lot of people miss it. There's people who make, especially in our industry, you know, I've, I've got my foot in two industries here, the insurance side and the financial side, but it's the same that people who run their businesses are making, have the ability to make, and a lot of them are driving a lot of revenue. Okay. They're making a lot of income. The key to becoming a millionaire though, is learning the skills to convert income into wealth. And what's really interesting, even the tax foundation, this is, this is kind of goes back to this myth that I was talking about about income equals wealth. Even the Tax Foundation, which is a nonprofit that works on tax policy, they even talk about millionaire status based off of um, tax returns, which is a, which basically you're reporting your income. So they even talk about income um, or millionaire status in terms of income. And we need to start talking about assets. You, you talked about income statement versus balance sheet. So income statement records for a business, money in and money out. My cash flow, what did I spend? Or what did I make? What did I spend? How much do I have left over? That's what I can take home. Simplified. The balance sheet is income's irrelevant. The balance sheet is just a collection of what assets do you have on the books? What property do you have? What um, 
a debt do you have? Because that's 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 negative to your net worth. What investment accounts, what cash assets, that's where it's at. At the end of the day, I'd rather a small income and a big net worth than the opposite. Are dropped calls and poor voice quality slowing down your business communication? It's time you switch to a solution that keeps the team connected seamlessly. Introducing Lightspeed Voice, your gateway to a revolutionary VoIP system designed to elevate your business communications to the next level. With Lightspeed Voice, you get more than just a reliable connection. You get feature-rich system that adapts to your business needs, whether it's video, conferencing, virtual voicemail, or call forwarding. Lightspeed Voice, they've got you covered. They got my agency covered at the Insurance Alliance. Worried about the transition? Don't be. Lightspeed Voice offers a seamless integration, making the switch to our VoIP system a breeze. Our expert support team, that's what they're known for, is here to guide you every step of the way, ensuring a smooth and efficient transition for your business. That's right. But that's not all. Lightspeed Voice is not just a communication tool. It's a strategic investment in your business success. It is. Save on your monthly communication costs while enjoying top-notch service. It's a win-win and it is. You can put that money somewhere else. Don't let outdated communication systems hold your business back. Upgrade to Lightspeed Voice today and experience the difference. Visit our website or call now to schedule a demo and see firsthand how Lightspeed Voice can transform your business communications. Lightspeed Voice, where every word matters and your business is always in sync. CAS approved. So let's talk about, I've got six characteristics here of millionaires and you've actually talked a little bit about them, but this is what changes. This is what we need to be teaching people right here. These six things, okay? And I'm just going to throw them out there one at a time and we can we can chat about them and, and give me your thoughts. So the first thing, the first thing is that millionaires live within their means. Frugality. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, most of them don't have a mortgage, right? I think all of them don't have a mortgage at some point. But I think part of the reason they're able to live within their means is because they haven't been you know, drawn into the debt, debt epidemic and the credit card spending and everything else. Yeah, whether you have a mortgage or not, there's this idea of I can only spend so much money, right? And if I spend what I make, I have no ability to build wealth. If I spend more than I make, that's obviously the the antithesis of of building <laughs> wealth. So millionaires are frugal. In fact, Stanley's daughter, she founded a company called Data Points. I do some work with, and frugality is one of the characteristics that we can actually assess people on. How frugal are you? And we can tell if you're on the way to build wealth or if you need to focus a little bit on that spot. I think there's a difference though, between being frugal and being cheap. Okay. Oh, 100%. Because I yeah. know plenty of people that are frugal, but they still understand value when they do make a big purchase. They're not necessarily just going to go and and go for the cheapest thing they can just because they want to live within their means or save money. They're going to make a good decision based on the overall value of, of what it is they're investing in or whatever it is they're buying. Yeah. I can be, I can be frugal, like you mentioned, um, and, and stop acting rich. He talks about really cool book. He looks at different consumer items and determines, um, you know, what what are what are people spending? What's the average price that someone has spent on a car? What's the type of car someone drives? And he goes into liquor and and watches and all these different things. And on the car topic, you're right. You, he said and this was in 2009, so this data has changed a little bit. But in 2009, when he wrote the book, the Toyota Camry was the car of choice by millionaires. 
that's not being cheap. That's being frugal. Like you said, you go buy a Lexus, but why do I need a Lexus if I can drive a Camry? Um, especially on their way to building their wealth. So absolutely cheap and frugal are, are two very uh, two very different things. Second thing is that millionaires accumulate wealth over the long term. You talked about delayed gratification. Talk a little bit more about that. Well, I mean, look, I'll tell you the exact opposite of that concept, crypto. Yeah. Right? So think about how many people thought, get rich quick on crypto. I'm going to go in, I'm going to buy it. And think about how many people were chirping about it two years ago and got in when it was inflated in a ridiculous amount. And why did they do that? Because they had watched what happened with Bitcoin over the short term and thought, mm -hmm. I'm going to get rich quick. I'm going to dump a bunch of money into this and we're going to ride the lightning and hope that it works. Well, guess what? It didn't. And I think that's part of it, man. I also I don't think that you see you don't necessarily see the millionaire people. You're, they're not going to make their money in a, in a normal savings account at a bank, but they're going to make very good decisions with where they're going to put that money. They're not going to take a ton of risk. They're going to I from my perspective, the people I know that have the most money look for a good rate of return, but they're not necessarily looking for the one that's been the best for five years. They're looking at a, a 10, 20 year snapshot. You know, yeah. I've seen the graphs of the stock market, man, where they, and they did this actually in a CIC where they showed like the stock market crash when the tech bubble busted. And then they zoom out and the stock market still did this. It's just the ups yep. and downs inside that little period. And so I look at it that way. I think the millionaires are the ones that are looking at the zoomed out version where a lot of the rest of the so of society is living and dying by what's happened in the last five years. Yeah, there's uh, um, uh, people who build wealth, play the long play the long game. Um, I, I often said, and this is this is um, when, when I look back and think, what is my biggest financial mistake over my lifetime? And one of it was I tried to accumulate too much too soon. That I wanted to have what took my parents 30 years to build, I wanted it in five years. I wanted it fast. And as I get older, I learned that wealth built over time is wealth that's kept longer. That quick wealth, quick wealth will will diminish quickly, or quick money will will go away quickly. But wealth built over time um, will stick. Look at the people um, who win the lottery, man. Yeah, you give you give somebody who doesn't know how to manage money a bunch of money, and what happens? They're bankrupt in like five years or less. Yeah. Uh, patience and perseverance. All right. And this third thing leads into what you were just talking about is that millionaires diversify their investments. The goal isn't always to maximize return. It's to mitigate risk. It's not always to maximize return. It's to mitigate risk. I mean, look, I, I think that the, again, it goes back to even some of my clients that I deal with. One of the things that I advise my clients on is to take as much quantifiable risk as you are comfortable taking because that's the only way that you're going to be able to, not that you can get ahead in the insurance game, but it's the only way you can really minimize the impact of what's going on right now. We have a lot of really wealthy people that want to self-insure for all of their stuff because they just don't want to pay the premium um, on homeowners or whatever else, which that's completely a completely foreign concept to me. But yeah. You know, to to clarify what I was, you know, what I'm saying, you're not going to find a wealthy person coming in and saying, "Hey, give me state minimum limits on the auto." They get the fact that the insurance company is going to stroke a check for policy limit and walk away. 
They're going to have the correct limits on their auto. They're going to typically have almost every time they have an umbrella over top of it because they do understand they have to assure, ensure against liability. Why? Because they can't quantify that. They don't know what's going to happen if a plaintiff's attorney gets into a courtroom after they've been into an at-fault auto accident. But if they decide they want to take a $100,000 deductible on a million-dollar home, I'm okay with that. I'm not even going to argue with them because they can look at that and say, I can reasonably afford $100,000. Anything $100,000 or less, I would rather go ahead and take the risk because I'm probably not going to file a claim for that anyhow because they're living in a home that's a million or $2 million dollars. Even though it's not the millionaire next door in the two seventy, you know, two hundred seventy thousand dollar house in Florida, we're not you're not going to find too many two hundred and seventy thousand dollar houses these days. Like so anywhere. you know, even if it's at a million bucks, yeah. they they run the numbers and they can tell you that if I do this for fifteen years and I don't have any claims, I will be cash flow positive. Uh, I, I will have have saved more, you know, over that period of time, and. You know, we don't always think that way, man, but that's one of the reasons why if you do have that that nest egg there, if you've got the emergency fund and the money in the bank and, and you know that you can comfortably take that risk because you've already got the fund set aside for it, then go for it and take it. You know, even if you only make it three or four years, you know, you still saved money for that period of time on your insurance had an unfortunate circumstance. But these people are looking at it saying, I haven't had a claim in 35 years that I've been a homeowner. I'm, I'm I'm willing to take the take the chance for the next 15 of taking a higher deductible. And then look, if you have a hundred thousand in the bank, okay, you, you probably don't want to have a hundred thousand dollar deductible. If you got a million dollars in the bank, then you can, you can have a hundred thousand dollar deductible. I mean, that 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 it's it's relative to some degree. But also, you know, I told someone the other day, I said, look, it's this <laughs> financial planning isn't always about me helping you get richer. It's about helping me keep you from getting poorer in some in some situations. Sure. Um, and we talk about diversifying risks. We're in industries where the majority of our peers have 80. Percent. I'm. I'm. This. I'm making this number totally up. But this is this anecdotal. Eighty percent of their net worth in one stock. They're a small business, right? That there's a point in business where when, when you're grinding it out in the beginning, I get it. Like everything is everything is pouring into to success. You, you got to. You got to take that risk. But there's a point where you take your your first risk and you start to cash flow where you want to start diversifying your wealth outside of your one business even even if it's doing well it's not about yeah my my business is is generating 20% of profit per year like this is the best investment i can make yeah what happens if you wake up one day and you don't want to grind it out what happens if you wait you don't what happens if you wake up one day and you can't make it to work god forbid for some reason you know diversifying uh investments diversifying your wealth is a way to mitigate risk and i call it I call it work optional. The more diversified you are, the more optional work becomes for you, especially the work that you don't like to do because you have other sources of of uh, cash flow. All right. The the fourth thing, and you mentioned this earlier too, uh, millionaires avoid debt, particularly, particularly consumer debt. How have you seen, have you seen situations where that's kind of like, I don't know, crippled people or people who thought they were wealthy, but yet yeah. were, were highly leveraged. It crippled me when I was in my early twenties. It's why I don't do it anymore. <laughs> I mean, 
went out and, and made a little coin, got some, you know, got some credit cards. And the next thing you know, I'm wearing a Rolex president with a diamond bezel, like, you know, like I'm that guy. And meanwhile, I'm probably paying 17% interest on, on the watch while I'm driving around in a financed truck, worried about whether or not I'm going to make payroll for the week. I'm living outside my means. I wanted people to think mm. I was more successful than I really, really was. But, you know, you see it all the time, too. Credit card companies make it easy. Introductory offers 0% for a certain amount of time. That's why they do it. They know you're not going to pay it off in that amount of time. They're going to charge more because you have less interest. They ultimately make more money. Same thing with balance transfers and everything else. And the one that really gets me is when people, you don't get into debt without making bad, conscious, conscious bad decisions. You've got to make conscious good decisions to get out of debt. It's not something that's quick and easy. You know, declaring bankruptcy, not the best way to do that. Um, but you see people all the time that'll go out and get a HELOC on their house and they'll use that to consolidate their debt. Now you've taken your debt problem and you've tied it to the biggest asset you likely have on your balance sheet. And if you don't fix the root cause of your issue with your spending, you have the ability now to lose your home as a result of it. It's crazy. Yes. yes. Yes, I love that. I, I heard recently someone say the the future of financial planning is less about dispensing expert financial advice and more about engaging clients and financial behavior change. That if if people don't and I don't man, and this is it. This is it. People are making a lot of money, and yet they haven't changed their habits. If you wouldn't have changed your habits, you wouldn't be in the position you're in right now. You may have never even gotten to this this position if you didn't change your habits. That that behavior change is so important. Fifth thing, that millionaires are committed to their financial goals, that they look past temporary trials and they have they have a longer term vision. How have you seen that play out maybe in, in a client or in your life? Well, I think I think that more than often than not boils down to when you know, maybe when you're, I was younger, I think about this and I was putting money away. I'm on a plan, right? I'm, I'm a big believer in paying cash for as much as I can. Um, you know, I don't want to finance anything really, to be honest with you, but it, it you know, they've made it very attractive with 0% interest on cars for 72 months to not use somebody else's money if you know you're disciplined enough to do it, right? But there would be times in the past where I would know that I wanted I, I wanted or was going to need something. We know that at some point we are going to need to replace the furniture in our home. So I know that's going to happen. How much do I think it's going to cost me? How much do I need to put away? And what do I need to do to, to stay disciplined on that? So if I look at my monthly budget and I think that every seven to 10 years, I'm going to have to replace the furniture in my home. It might be a reasonable thing for me to put $200 a month aside and earmark that for my future furniture purchase. Well, that doesn't mean that if the kids are nagging at me or I've had a good week at work and I want to pat myself on the back, but I don't have enough money in my slush fund that I should go and then borrow money from my furniture account so that I can go buy pizza and, and, and celebrate what a great week I had in sales or whatever, because I've now kept myself from making forward progress on that goal. And that can apply to any goal. It's certainly not just that. It could be a set mm -hmm. amount of money you want to have in savings if you're trying to save up for six months of living expenses or whatever else. But once you set that goal, you have to stay committed to that goal. The second you deviate from it, 
the next time it's easier and easier and yeah. easier, just like not going to the gym. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, deviating doesn't mean you failed, but deviating just makes it easier the next time to deviate. All right. That's hundred uh, percent. That's big. All right. And the last thing that millionaires do, and, and you and I are, are are the benefactors of this one right here, is that they seek professional help. They hire professionals. Millionaires surround themselves with people who are going to help them achieve what they want to achieve. So I'm curious, people hire you, you come in there and you, you, I mean, you, you, you make yourself, you avail yourself so much to, to your, to your clients, not, not your, not your insurance clients, but your coaching clients and, and killing sure. commercial. Um, was there someone like that in your life? Who did you go out and hire somebody at some point kind of in your, in your journey? No, I didn't. And it's probably why I screwed up as much as I did when I was younger. But, you know, here's the thing, man. I th- I think this also speaks a little bit to what you said earlier about how 70% or whatever the percentage was are first generation millionaires. And and I talk about this quite a bit. We I think we even talked about it on one of my podcasts recently. But one of the things that I've noticed about the current you know, the generation that my oldest son is in is they don't have a problem asking for help. They they understand. And I, I think this is this is a direct, like hundred percent direct contributor to them being able to earn as much as they do is they are willing to settle for less by Mm. hiring somebody to come and do the things for them that they're not the best at doing. So if you look at a lot of the people that are on Instagram and TikTok, and by the way, I'm 50 and I'm paying more attention to what that generation's doing than what I'm in my own generation or the generation ahead of me because they think completely differently than we do. You know, yeah. I, I think that it's probably a safe assumption to say that in our generation, it was frowned upon and maybe even still is to a certain degree to have a couple of side hustles. You hear it all the time. You should have one job. You know, you have an agency. Why do you need to have a coaching program? Why do you need to have a podcast? Why do you need to have this? Why do you need to have that? When you watch some of these younger people that have amassed some wealth on on social media, the way they've done it is they're running six, seven, eight different businesses, but they're doing it from all the way up here. And they've got people that are really good at each one of those businesses running them. They're simply owners. So at tw- in their early 20s, they figured out something that people in their 50s still haven't, and that is you can't be a worker and an owner. You have to be one or the other, and they've determined, I'm only going to be an owner, and I'm willing to delay my gratification. You would think that Grayson would want to run out and buy all of the expensive stuff he can when he gets his, his paychecks here. He doesn't. He saves more than I ever would have thought of saving when I was his age because he has very defined goals in what he wants. When I ask him about a girlfriend, he's like, I'm not going to even think about getting into a relationship with a young lady until I know that I can financially take care of her the way that I want to. What? I accidentally must have taught him that somehow. I don't know. But, you know, at the end of the day, I just it. I think that we are so quick to dismiss the intelligence and discipline of that generation when in reality, if we just step back and listen and watch without any bias or judgment, we would see they got it figured out, man, in a way that we don't. You know, one thing I respect about, and you know, the, the, uh, you and I are, are, I guess we're both Gen Xers, right? I'm kind of on the edge of Gen X millennial, 
But the joke is millennials don't want to work and, and Gen Z is even worse, right? One thing that that the older generation dogs the younger generation about, and I actually think this is a positive, and I actually think, like you said, we need to learn from them, is they are values driven. 100%. Right. Values, values, in, values in they want to make a difference in their mm-hmm. job. Yeah. It's not just about the money. What is your company doing to invest in the community and drive change in people's lives? The other thing is they understand investing in experiences instead yes. of things, yeah. right? So think about how many young people we know that travel the world and even agency owners, man, uh, Sean Goral. I don't know if you know Sean or not, but he's uh, an agency owner in Virginia. That's in killing commercial. Every time I turn around, he's in Africa, he's in Ireland, he's in Egypt. He's somewhere he's running a successful agency, but he's traveling the world and he's experiencing life at the same time. That was a conscious decision he made. He has people he knows he can trust to execute his processes and he just manages it from a high level. And then he, he and his wife travel with their daughter wherever they want to go. And I am not going to be the same as the generations before me, because I have listened to people in my family my entire life complain about everything they haven't gotten to do or all the things they don't have. So I pretty much made the decision. I'm I'm going to buy the concert ticket. I'm going to take the trip. I'm going to do that stuff, man. Life's too short. And if you don't get to experience it while you're here, what's the point? Yeah. And, and bring it back to this idea of seeking professional help. It's so important to surround yourself with people who are going to understand your value and advise and direct and guide you along that way. Because we can't, we, I mean, even if we we're, even if we could do everything on our own, we shouldn't. One, one thing my dad always taught me, he goes, son, you went to school for money. Don't try to fix your toilet. <laughs> Hire a plumber. Right. Right. You don't, you don't try to fix your electricity. Hire an electrician. Uh, now, yeah, as a homeowner, you learn little things here and there. But but the idea is that six financially successful people aren't afraid to spend money to hire people that are like-minded, sometimes maybe differently minded, because sometimes you want that challenge, right? But they're going to surround themselves with people who have who have done what they want to do, they can learn from, or someone who shares that same value, who can keep them accountable and push them along. Well, the other thing is they know what their own time is worth. And their own time is worth more than what it would take for them to learn how to fix the toilet, go to the store and get the parts, go back and rewatch the video on how to fix it, then actually attempt it, then go back and rewatch the video because they didn't get it right. I mean, and then, where and then going, call the guy to come fix yeah, your problem. Yeah, and then they're going to end up calling the more. guy anyhow, right. right? So why waste your time on the front end? Unless unless that's your hobby, right? I mean, yeah. Um, but um, Dave, man, I I don't want to take up any more of your time, but um, I appreciate you. I appreciate um, I appreciate your work. You know, you, you you joked about accidentally teaching your kid uh, something. You're probably accidentally teaching a lot of people a lot of really good. Um, uh, business habits and a lot of good good discipline. So I appreciate you, what you do for the industry. I appreciate your friendship, man. And uh, thanks for having this conversation with us. Absolutely, man. My pleasure. Anytime. Information presented and discussed on the Stuff About Money podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute direct financial advice. Be sure to consult with a qualified financial advisor prior to implementing any strategies discussed. Eric Garcia and Xavier Angel's branch office is located in New Orleans, Louisiana.
The branch phone number is 504-218-5479. Securities offered through Osaic Wealth Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through New Century Financial Group, LLC. A registered investment advisor. Osaic Wealth is separately owned and other entities and or marketing names, products, or services referenced here are independent of Osaic Wealth. Are you looking for an insurance community to join? Have you heard of the LAAIA? The Latin American Association for Insurance Agents is just not for Latins. Their focus on diversity and inclusion over the last few years has made this 54-year-old association one of the fastest growing and the most dynamic associations in the industry. With established chapters in Florida, Houston, Dallas, Atlanta, and Denver, it's no surprise this association has the attention of everyone in this industry. Their upcoming national convention on beautiful Marco Island includes keynote speaker Trisha Griffith, the CEO of Progressive. National leaders from around the country like Marshberry, Vertifor, Lula, and more will be here on center stage as well. And whether you're an independent agent, a captive agent, life or health agency, or even a financial services professional, this association offers you everything you need to network and grow your business. Make sure you check them out and consider joining me, Jason Cass, at the next upcoming convention. It's going to be August 21st, the 24th, at the JW Marriott on stunning Marco Island. This has been Cass Approved.